electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Contessa Brewer in for Brian Sullivan. Right now on Last Call, a run to remember. Stocks grab records. What are retail investors buying most? We have some surprising answers. All in. FanDuel's parent Flutter kicks off trading on the New York Stock Exchange. How that takes the competition to other sports books ahead of the Super Bowl. Busting the budget. One state refuses to pay for weight loss drugs. The man behind the decision will be here. A major announcement from Elon Musk's world, and it has nothing to do with Tesla. We have breaking developments. Plus, they're here. Ads arrive for Amazon Prime Video. I don't know why I'm trying to sell it to you like it's wonderful for viewers. And it could spell big trouble for a number of companies. It's Make It Mondays. We'll meet the entrepreneur who put all his eggs in one basket. I mean, literally. And then turned that into nearly a half billion dollar empire. We have that and more over the next hour. Last Call is up right now. First up on Last Call, the fast and the furious, the Dow and S&P 500 with fresh record closes ahead of a huge week for earnings, the Fed and the economy. But one magnificent group of stocks really grabs our attention. Microsoft, Alphabet, Meta, NVIDIA all hit records today. NVIDIA side, those companies, as well as Apple and Amazon, report earnings this week. The MAG-7 have been charging hard into earnings, fueling new records, and there's no shortage of optimism. Here's what famed tech investor Brad Gerstner said about the group just a little while ago on Fast Money. The first week of the year, we MAG-7 was down and everybody was panicking, right, that the run was over. And then we've had a 30% move out of NVIDIA higher. We've had a 10% move out of Microsoft higher. So we've had a big bounce off of the bottom. And I think this week they're going to have to deliver on earnings or beat earnings in order to just stay where they are. If the mega cap earnings weren't enough, we have a crucial Fed decision Wednesday, Friday, the January jobs report. And investors will be watching to see if the, what the impact is of all those headline-grabbing layoffs we've seen in big tech. Is that hitting the broader economy? Economists predict the unemployment rate will remain flat at 3.7%. And how does all of that, this big week, affect your money? Let's ask one of the top strategists on the street, Fundstrat managing partner Tom Lee. Tom, it's good to have you here. Do you think the Magnificent Seven, as they're now being called, are running too fast, too furious into earnings? Uh, I don't. I'm, I think that in the past couple of weeks, the stock market's actually gotten stronger. Last week was a good example. Tesla missed, was down 11%, and the NASDAQ finished positive, um, and we had a positive week for the S&P. I, I think that's a sign of real strength, something we wouldn't have seen in the last two years. Do you believe that 
the market should include, and the rally should include, names outside of the Magnificent Seven? Should we be seeing more participants in the rally? Uh, I think there's a lot of things setting up for this week that will allow broader participation. Of course, as you mentioned it, the first and foremost important is the FOMC meeting and their rate decision on Wednesday. And then, of course, on Friday, we get the jobs report, as well as some critical inflation data. Investors are, are nearly certain that the central bank is going to keep rates right where they are. Is that the right move for the markets, for the economy at this time? Uh, yeah, I don't think the Fed is in a position to cut rates, but I think what's going to be important is how their views around that are evolving. We've had such good inflation data the last, you know, both PCE and CPI, they're two different type of inflation reports that argue if the Fed doesn't start cutting early this year, real interest rates are going to get too tight. So I think it's going to be important for the Fed to acknowledge that fact. If not, the markets are going to sort of push the Fed. When you came on last call last time, you made an interesting prediction. I want to play that. Here it is. I think it's possible that we make a, a minor new high before the end of the month, and then we might have something like a 7% drawdown. Since then, the Dow and S&P 500 have hit record highs. I mean, I, I think we're on track now for five days of new records. Are you still predicting a pullback, and what would be the catalyst there? Um, well, as that clip said, we expected new highs by late January which was on schedule. And I think this week is going to tell us how much further we go. You know, we, we were sort of penciling in 5,000. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, we could maybe go higher. But from there, yeah, I think an air pocket forms because, one, as you sort of pointed out, investors will get nervous about the Fed and when they start tightening. And parabolic moves, which we've had since October of 2023, usually end in a pretty big retracement. So I do think we... We continue to be strong, but then, yeah, then after that, I think there's a big air pocket. Uh, so we've talked a lot about the Fed here. Let's talk about earnings. You've got Alphabet and Microsoft tomorrow. On Thursday, you have Amazon and Meta. We've seen these big tech companies really focus on efficiency and where they're spending and where they need to pull back. Um, and, and it looks like restraining some of the spending where jobs are concerned. What do you expect out of earnings, and how might that propel the markets? Well, this is the biggest week for earnings. I mean, 108 companies report. Uh, the FANGs are reporting, you know, both Tuesday and Thursday. And, you know, these companies, I mean, they're big, but they do operate in different spaces. So I, I think if you have disappointments, let's say you have something disappointing from Apple, I don't think it's going to necessarily weaken the market broadly. It's going to hurt anyone who owns it, but... I think for the most part, I, I think earnings have been delivering. I mean, it's been a pretty decent earnings season, and I think it's really confirming earnings this year should be up double digits. What about the jobs report? What are you expecting to come through in that? Because the, the layoffs, they have been so headline-grabbing. But, you know, yeah. it, we've seen su- such a labor squeeze from smaller businesses. It's not clear that they're uh, eager to do yeah. layoffs. You know, the jobs report is getting harder to to predict, right, because uh, the response rates are lower. And there's been a pretty big divergence between the household survey and ADP and the, the jobs report. So it is uh, a little bit of a crapshoot to see, but it's still important. And, you know, I, I wouldn't want to see a really bad report. I wouldn't want to see negative jobs, but a softening jobs market would be good. Tom, it's great to see you on this Monday. Thank you for being here. Thanks. Up next, a major development for one of Elon Musk's most ambitious projects. 
We'll have breaking details. Plus, Netflix co-founder Reed Hastings giving up a big chunk of his shares. We'll dig into what's behind the sale. Place your bets. 13 days until the Super Bowl. FanDuel's parent just raised the stakes for sports gambling at large. Stay with us. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Let's get to tomorrow's news tonight. The stories Wall Street will be talking about. First up, Netflix co-founder Reed Hastings handed off a major chunk of his Netflix stock. He's giving away about $1.1 billion of his shares, or about 40% of his holdings. He has gifted those shares to the Silicon Valley Community Foundation, which focuses on reducing systemic inequities in the Bay Area. Bloomberg estimates Hastings' net worth at more than $6 billion. Next up, Elon Musk posting on X, the first human has received a brain implant from his Neuralink startup. He says the patient is recovering well and is showing promising signs. Neuralink aims to help users with major brain injuries communicate using implanted control devices in the brain. Musk adds that Neuralink's first product is called telepathy. There you go. Finally, a major day for sports betting flutter. The parent company of betting giant FanDuel officially started trading on the New York Stock Exchange. This is the secondary listing for flutter, which already had traded on the London. Trust me, there is sound. When they were clapping, you could hear it when I was there. It was pretty remarkable. Flutter's revenue has surged nearly 300% in that time period, while average NFL viewership has seen a 13% pop. Currently as a 43% market share, on online sports betting. That's according to Jeffries. Now, earlier today, I spoke with Flutter CEO Peter Jackson about what it means for the company. The U.S. business, the FanDuel business, has been growing enormously in the last few years. So to be able to bring the, you know, the opportunity for U.S. investors to, you know, to buy FanDuel and also buy our international business is something we wanted to do. Joining me now, co-founder and CEO of Spring Owl Asset Management, Jason Ader, and Jeffries analyst and Gaming and Lodging and Leisure, Managing Director David Katz. It's a mouthful. Really, he heads up all of the gaming and leisure analysis for Jeffries. You, you know, David, you guys are out with a big note uh, saying basically that this listing, which is secondary right now, but they're going to take it to the shareholders and ask them to make the U.S. the primary listing, that it could be a real catalyst. Can you tell me why? It, it, it is, and I appreciate you having me. Um, our colleague James Wheatcroft, who sits in, in London, who we partner with, did put out a great note last Thursday uh, going through some valuation analysis, 
some market analysis that we work on together. Uh, and, you know, frankly, I think the, a lot of the value over time, and he lays this out, we lay this out together, um, a lot of the value for Flutter uh, is, you know, more revenue is going to be coming from the U.S. business, from FanDuel. Uh, and by the time we get to 2030, more of their EBITDA, majority of their EBITDA is going to be coming from the U.S. And I think the valuation aspect of it is very important. If you look at uh, Peer DraftKings today, that's trading at about 16 times our 25 EBITDA uh, versus FanDuel that's trading at 12.8 times EBITDA for the entire company. Yeah. And realize that that includes the international piece. Okay, so EBITDA is the important earnings metric that all these gaming companies look at in terms of profit- profitability. It's how they judge it. And, and FanDuel has already proven it's got several quarters of profitability under its belt. That's part of it. They've retained their number one market-leading status. But, Jason, today I was watching the shares of FLUT. That's the ticker symbol for Flutter now. And while they ended the day up about a quarter of a percentage point, DraftKings uh, shares went up like 3% on the day. Does first-comer status matter where investing in a gambling stock is concerned? I think it, it, it's a couple of different factors there, but the, the stock price of Flutter ran up a lot into the U.S. listing. And then, you know, lo and behold, everybody looked at the valuation here in the U.S. And of course, we're now just a few weeks away from what's going to be a great Super Bowl and the betting numbers are incredible. So you combine all that and it's just created a little bit of uh, investor euphoria. And the, the amazing thing is it's it's not on fairy dust. The actual revenues Profits are really uh, quite an exciting story. It, the profits have been proven even for those that are coming in third or fourth place in terms of market share. We've seen it from Caesars. We've seen a, a quarter of profitability from Penn, which has now partnered with ESPN to relaunch ESPN Bet. Uh, and, and we've seen it with MGM, with Bet MGM, um, in terms of profitability. Does it matter if you're the number one market share leader if you can still turn a profit, David? I, look, I think you're making an important point, a, cu- a couple important points, which is that this group is pivoting toward profitability. And that's true on an EBITDA basis. But more importantly, when you look at FanDuel or Peer DraftKings uh, or a number of the others, what you find out is that 90 to 95 percent of that EBITDA turns into free cash flow. Right. And as an old gaming guy, as as Jason is, uh, the appreciation <laughs> for free cash flow and the decision set that that brings it is really compelling. But more importantly, when we talk to clients on a weekly basis, the opportunity to have a couple of peers uh, in the group and two quality peers, Flutter is a quality name, uh, and the way they've executed their business through FanDuel here, it's a quality name. The addition of another quality name raises the entire level uh, of the group. Jason, you were a board member at Las Vegas Sands, so you know how you can woo customers into becoming loyal customers. Are you surprised that MGM and Caesars have not been able to capitalize more on their reward system to get bigger market share? I mean, they have, I I think Caesars has the biggest rewards database in the business. How do you not use that to reward your sports bettors? I mean, FanDuel and DraftKings, I mean, (laughs) you know, they've had first mover advantage and, and, and Flutter as a company just had such a 
technology advantage given the the scope of their portfolio that they're just better at acquiring customers retaining customers but the bigger story i feel like for caesars and for mgm is las vegas is just growing and growing and growing in the backdrop of this amazing story in online sports betting you know so many people thought oh my god when online gaming is legalized it's going to be the end of land-based gaming in Las Vegas is really at risk. What a what a fallacy that was. Well, and now you have Las Vegas as uh, the sports capital potentially of the nation. I mean, I can't think of a city that is better positioned to host the Super Bowl than Las Vegas. I might be a little biased because I'm there, I'm there a lot. But, you know, David, here you are looking at five years after the Supreme Court paved the way for states to permit sports betting. And now Las Vegas has a Super Bowl. Uh, how will this will it matter to first quarter earnings for MGM when Caesars and the other players in town? Uh, it, it had better. Um, the Super Bowl is always a, a big event in Las Vegas, even when it's not hosting it, uh, uh, you know, in their stadium, in Allegiant Stadium. And, and in this instance, uh, it will be. I'd like to add one quick point with respect to Caesars, which is when you look at this group that we're talking about, Flutter talked today about how masterfully they have balanced centralized versus decentralized, uh, you know, their platform and all the brands globally that they have and how they've allowed FanDuel to do what they need to do. And when you compare that with Caesars, who acquired William Hill several years ago and immediately sold off the international and European assets, with it, they may have given away just a little bit of expertise that the likes of Flutter is benefiting from today. 49ers or Chiefs? Go, David. Uh, 49ers. Jason? (laughs) I'm I'm all for Taylor Swift, so there you go. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Have a great week. Still ahead, buckling under the weight. One state says no more to covering weight loss drug costs. Will more states have to follow? We'll be back with more. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome back. Take a look at futures here a few hours after the markets close, and you can see the S&P 500 really. It's not changed at all. Light trading here. Dow is off just by a tenth of one percent, and the Nasdaq is up by about the same. North Carolina will no longer cover the cost of obesity medications for state employees. On average, weight loss drugs costs can exceed $1,000 per month without insurance. And more than 20,000 people under North Carolina's state health plan are currently on those medications. It's a 731% increase in users from mid-2021. Now, of course, obesity is a huge concern for most states, and North Carolina is not the exception. 34.1% of adults in the state are considered obese, and it puts them at higher risk for more costly health issues. The state health plan officially will stop covering weight loss medications April 1st. With us tonight for more on the decision is North Carolina State Treasurer Dale Fulwell. 
Thank you for joining Last Call. I understand that the state health plan faces a $4.2 billion budget gap over the next five years. How much was the decision to stop covering these weight loss drugs a factor of there's just increasing pressure overall on the plan? Well, Contessa, thank you for having me. And on behalf of all those that teach, protect, and serve, it's important for your viewers to know uh, that this was a very difficult decision from the board. Uh, we have a loyalty and duty of care to these individuals. Uh, but when we have the price of one drug, Wagovi, which is I'm holding up right here, when we have one drug that has the potential of torpedoing the financial stability of the state health plan for one year, uh, the state health plan board found it necessary to take these steps. I'd also like to be clear that this same board nearly five years ago eliminated the cost of insulin, eliminated the cost of, of diabetes testing. We always take insulin and diabetes adherence very seriously. And we've never questioned the efficacy of this drug. What we're questioning is the price. Uh, this drug can potentially cost up to $1,500 in North Carolina. In the home country of, the, of Nova Nordisk in Denmark, it costs about $280. What we've asked Nova Nordisk to do is to sell to those that teach, protect, and otherwise serve in North Carolina this drug for the same price as people in Denmark pay. Uh, what was their response when you asked them to do that? Every chance that we took to get better protocols, tighter protocols, to lower the price, uh, and to make sure that these drugs were actually being prescribed to people who actually needed them. In every instance, we were told either by them or our pharmacy benefit manager that our, our rebates would be in jeopardy. Well, for, wait, but, but simply health, for trying to negotiate a better price as, as punishment? Yes, we have actually given amendments to our pharmacy benefit manager for them to send to the manufacturer to try to resolve. Uh-oh. I think... Uh, we need to make sure that... Go ahead. We just had a little hiccup there. Go ahead. Yeah. Obesity is a very serious... Yeah, it, ob obesity is an issue. Unfortunately, we've got a we've got a bad signal here, um, and so we're not able to do it. But you know, one of the one of the interesting conundrums for county and state city health plans is is the investment worth more now than it is to pay for very serious health issues because of obesity down the line. So uh, we'll have to have him back on and see if we can get to the bottom of that. Coming up, MAG7 earnings set to kick into high gear. Where are retail investors buying in? The answers may surprise you. It's next. Twenty twenty four is looking an awful lot like twenty twenty three because the magnificent seven continue to be magnificent. In fact, the MAG7 index has outperformed the equal-weighted S&P 500 so far this year. As we mentioned earlier, the mega-cap names face their biggest test this week. So how are retail investors trading the space ahead of earnings? Let's ask J.J. Kinahan, the CEO of IG North America. That's the parent company of Tasty Trade, one of the top brokerages in the industry. So is the are the magnificent seven beloved among retail traders absolutely i mean one of the reasons you you all talk about it every day and you talk about this at night is because 
It, it, these are the stocks that are driving the market. These are the stocks where retail is trading. Every day when I look at our top 10 names, the Magnificent Seven is going to be in there as names that the people are trading in both the equity and the option side of the business. Are any of those seven the most magnificent, the most bullish, the uh, most yes. um, actively traded? Well, I, I will start with the most actively traded is probably Tesla over the last few months. But the one that's got the most bullish activity is actually Microsoft. Microsoft, our clients started getting very bullish on Microsoft. You have to remember, with uh, retail trading, you're usually going to see maybe 52 to 53% normally bullish activity. There's more bullish than bearish activity in mm -hmm. general. But what we've been seeing from Microsoft since right before Christmas has been about 65% bullish activity. People have really continued to buy this stock, looking at both the equity and option spaces overall. They continue to do so as we head into earnings this week. We're expecting, you know, if you look at what the options market is pricing, and they're pricing in about a 4.5% move on the stock this week in options. In, uh, on earnings. So it's going to be really interesting to see how Microsoft performs. Do retail traders see earnings the way that a lot of our guests do, which is either an accelerator or a break? It's, uh, I think people like to play the volatility around uh, uh, earnings season. But anybody who trades, I think, realizes earnings drive the market. Mm -hmm. So what happens in earnings is going to long-term drive the equity market in general. I think one of the interesting things has been that as options uh, have become more and more short-dated in some of their explorations, it's really given the retail investor an opportunity to express their opinion for the event without having to go out further in time. Are any of these Magnificent Seven, you think, a great bellwether for the rest of the economy? Absolutely, Amazon. And the reason I say Amazon is look at all the businesses they're involved with. They're involved with retail. They're involved with entertainment. They're involved with logistics. They're involved, obviously, through Amazon Web Services and technology in so many different areas. So many other companies are using that. You know, <laughs> you watch the games yesterday, and they have stuff about Amazon Web Services showing, uh, you know, replays and statistics on certain plays and what could and couldn't happen. So, to me, they touch so many other businesses besides, obviously, what they're doing themselves that I think as a, you know, even retail traders, I'm not saying you have to go and dive through the whole report, but you should look at how they're doing in all their other major businesses because it gives you an opportunity to see what the spillover effect is. You know, is. it's really interesting that you bring that up because what we're seeing is a confluence of content where the trading, the video gaming, the gambling, and the sports and then other kinds of content, they're all sort of enmeshing in this. Do you think that younger retail traders now have a difference? Like what they expect to have from their platform alone has got to look and feel different, much like other things that they grew up with, that, you know, the gaming or, or now sports betting that they have in their hands. I won't say it's going to be gaming because obviously, you know, that's against some SEC rules. But I do think what we are seeing, and I referred to this earlier, the shorter duration of options has allowed people to express their opinions with more, shall we say, instant uh, satisfaction. One thing about that, I think it gets a really bad name sometimes in the press, which kind of aggravates me. And the reason I say that is I think most of us have a speculative part in our portfolio. Speculation in and of itself is not bad, particularly if you are informed mm -hmm. and you're taking defined risk. The other part about it is so many people 
have 401k plans, et cetera. I do hope if you're a younger person watching, you don't have a 401k plan through your work and it's offered, please, please, please take it. But, you know, people do have retirement plans outside necessarily their uh, brokerage account. And I think that that's one area. People don't look at the whole picture. So people are saving for life. I noticed that you said that your clients are starting to really look at the Russell 2000. Yeah. Why is that why, why, why is that important? I think it's really important because if you look at major rallies for them to last, you usually need the Russell to participate. Now, we're seeing the S&P up at all-time highs. And, you know, it's interesting. You know, I, I, I happen to run into Thomas Lee that you talked to earlier and, and heard his opinions. And so in order for, for that to happen, in my opinion, and that rally to continue up to the highs he's talking about, I think the Russell has to participate in some form. You have to remember, it's almost 20% off its all-time highs while the rest of the market runs away. There, so you think that could be an opportunity? I think it could be an area, yeah, 100%. But real quick, who, who do you see outside of the MAG-7? What do you see for bulls? Where do you see for bears? Well, what we're seeing right now from our client, Cisco, Mm -hmm. uh, one, which is, I think, is a really interesting one. Uh, J.P. Morgan has been one that our clients were on through earnings Purples, and, yeah. and, and, and uh, Netflix. And then on the bearish side, what's been really interesting, Oracle and, of course, Boeing. And our clients were a bit bullish on Boeing before all the trouble started and have gotten significantly more bearish since then. For sure. J.J., it's great to have you Thank here. You Thank you for coming in. Let's get to our quicker than the ticker. It's all the best of the rest of the headlines. Let's put 60 seconds on the clock. A new wave of student loan forgiveness. The Biden administration just canceled $5 billion in debt for 74,000 borrowers. It was for those part of the public service forgiveness program who have worked in the public sector for 10 or more years. Japan just became the fifth country to land on the moon. They launched their lunar lander this morning to demonstrate, quote, pinpoint landing. A lightweight spacecraft used new technology to try to hit a very small target on the moon. Officials need more time to analyze whether the mission was accomplished. Another headache for Boeing. Look at that. A Boeing 747 cargo plane made an emergency landing in Miami after one of its engines caught on fire and flames shot out of the left wing. The Atlas Air cargo plane was headed for Puerto Rico, thankfully. The five crew members on board made it back to Miami's airport safely. The FAA said the statement it will be investigating. Real life horsepower. Two horses owned by local Amish people in Tennessee pulled out an SUV that was stuck in the snow. Here's to less horsepower than more. Did anybody spot anything different about that? It's almost as though Brian Sullivan did not want me to get through my own quicker than the ticker. Coming up, the ads arrive on Amazon Prime. Should Netflix be looking over its shoulder? Plus, the Cybertruck gets a king's welcome in China. Will it help snap Tesla's January funk? Stay with us. Amazon introduced ads to Prime Video today. If you're a Prime member already paying more than 100 a year, you'll have to fork over an extra three bucks a month if you want to stream ad-free. And it seems like every streamer is getting into the ad game. On Peacock, owned by our parent company, Comcast, you get five minutes or less, but it's the cheapest option. For Netflix's ad-supported tier, you get four to five minutes of ads per hour. On Max, you get three to four minutes per hour. And Amazon says its ad load will be between two and three and a half minutes of ads per hour of viewing. Joining me now is Mark Douglas, president and CEO of Mountain. I'm really torn about this because I came up in an ad-supported business and 
when cable cutting started happening, you know, you could see the effect. Yeah. On the other hand, I'm an Amazon Prime member. What do I make of this ad business and what it means to the streamers and how much this is going to be the way it is moving forward? Well, Amazon's coming into it with kind of a diff from a different angle. So one, the ad load is significantly, noticeably lower than everyone else. And that's because they're starting out with so many of their users are going to be getting ads, the entire customer base. So they can afford to do it that way. But they're also coming in with a whole new group of buyers. So the thing about Amazon is the whole TV industry essentially goes after like 2,000 big advertisers. Amazon has a search advertising business on Amazon.com with hundreds of thousands of buyers and they're bringing those ad buyers over to their TV business and it's all it I think it's going to produce a significant amount of revenue from them and really just grow the TV business overall. What's the advantage for the advertisers here because if you think of legacy media and the way they would try to target audiences based on what the content was or or maybe where you lived but the the way that Amazon has got to be able to to offer niche advertising really tailored to the consumer, I would think would be a game changer. Yeah. So the way to think about Amazon advertising is what would you do if you brought all of these you know, small, mid-sized e-commerce vendors that you buy from on Amazon and you brought them to television? That what would that do to the television business and what would that do to the e-commerce business? Amazon is doing a mashup of those two and it's just it, it it's just a whole new angle for for TV advertising in t and really differentiates how everyone thinks of all other advertise these big media companies. So, it's game changing. So do you think, Mark, that uh, that streaming ads are more valuable to advertisers right now or if not, will they be? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's kind of what Mountain does. We we provide um, connected TV streaming for e-commerce, and it's absolutely. We have so much data to show the value of that, and most importantly, show the value of that, you know, to essentially mid-sized companies, smaller companies. Amazon's doing the same thing within their ecosystem. And, and then how does Amazon factor into this against the guys that were there first? I mean, YouTube, the juggernaut, and Netflix. The, well, YouTube's not in some ways truly television. I mean, everyone who watches ads on YouTube, you're just hovering over the skip button to skip the ad. So they do like, you know, 30 second ads against two minutes of content. With Amazon, you're talking NFL games, you're talking movies, like full, original, episodic content, and with only two minutes or three minutes of ads per hour. So the formula is totally different, and it's way more attractive because of that. It's way more attractive because of the data that you mentioned. So yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a much better formula. Mark, traditional media is already in a pressured environment where advertising is concerned. How much more does this ramp that up? Um, it's, I wouldn't say it's a threat to traditional media. It just accelerates the move from broadcast advertising to essentially turning TV into digital advertising, which is, you know, paid search is digital advertising. Pay, um, advertising on Instagram is digital advertising. And now television is just rapidly also becoming digital advertising, which is great for consumers. You see ads that are relevant to you and targeted at you. Mark Douglas, great to have you. Thank you. Thanks. Meantime, Tesla is generating a lot of buzz overseas. The EV maker kicked off its Cybertruck tour in China over the weekend, sending a lot of people just crowding in to see that. Look at they've got their phones out. They want the pictures. Tesla has not announced whether the truck will indeed be sold in China, 
likely due to regulatory hurdles tied to pickup trucks in the country. But despite the uncertainty in China, Tesla might finally be on a rebound. Shares surged 4% today. It's its sixth positive session this year. Will the upward momentum last? With us tonight for more on Tesla is a future fund managing partner, Gary Black. Gary, great to see you. Thanks for being here on Last Call. Hi, Contessa. How are you doing? Okay, so here you had Tesla kind of sitting out the rally this year. What propels that to turn around? Well, last week, you know, they decided not to guide uh, for 2024. And, you know, with portfolio managers, they shoot first or sell first, ask questions later, because usually when you don't guide and you've been guiding, um, it's usually bad news. I think what happened is Elon, he doesn't have his old CFO, Zach, um, to tell him, you know, you have to guide. And I think he just said, screw it. I'm not going to guide for this year. I don't want to be holding be beholden to Wall Street for guidance. Mm -hmm. And I think what happened is that caused the stock to get get smashed. Now, after the weekend, people thought about it and said, wow, stock's selling at about a 43 times PE to next year, which is very cheap. Hasn't been that cheap since last year. Uh, Remember during the spring, it went up like from 108 to 270. And then you got all these um, catalysts for this year so, you know, people believe that the auto gross margin is bottom. Uh, the fourth quarter gross margin was higher than the third quarter. So that that's a support point. You got the $7,500, $7,500 EV credit off invoice. You got the cyber truck you just mentioned, the halo effect. So people see the cyber truck and they go to the website or they go to the store and they buy um, a test. You got the Model 3 refresh. You got FSD, which keeps getting better and better. So I think when you think about all the catalysts, the stock is cheap. It's washed out. And I think people just said today enough, you know, there's there's you know, there, there, there's a reason to own Tesla. It still looks pretty reasonable from a pricing standpoint. But you got to get these catalysts to actually work. Can, can you weigh in on the compensation plan to make sure that Elon Musk's is is keeping his brain power at Tesla? Yeah, look, he's got, uh, you know, if he's got 13% today, he's got options that are worth another, let's call it 5% after, you know, he has to pay some capital gains tax on him if he exercises them. So you basically got to get the board to say, we're going to give him another 7%. I I have no issue with that. I would rather keep him because I know that if he left Tesla, stock would go down 20, 25%. But you have to have, you know, big market cap goals and big net income goals. So you know, the market cap for Tesla today is about $600 billion. If you had some market cap goals that started maybe a trillion and then a trillion five and two trillion, and you have net income yeah. goals, then I think, you know, most shareholders would be fine with that as long as, you know, he has these stretch goals that he has to make in order to get paid. I know a lot of people say, you know, and I have friends of mine, you know, investors who say, well, look, he sold 4% of his shares to buy Twitter. Let's forget about that. You want to keep Elon at Tesla mm-hmm. because without him, yeah. the stock's going to fall a lot. Gary, thank you so much for your time and your perspective. Okay, thanks. Bye. A quick programming note here. A rare and exclusive interview with Andreessen Horowitz co-founder Ben Horowitz. He sits down with our own Morgan Brennan tomorrow at the American Dynamism Summit 2024 in D.C. And they'll talk all things VC, tech, and companies that support the national interest from housing to aerospace. Tune in to Closing Bell Overtime tomorrow at 4 p.m. Eastern. Coming up, a Make It Monday to get truly, are you ready for this one? Egg-sided about 
with the entrepreneur behind a nearly half billion dollar empire. Stay with us. Welcome back. It's time now for Make It Monday series, and tonight's installment is more of a made it, if you will. It's the story behind the incredibly popular Vital Farms egg brand. The company is the nation's largest producer of pasture-raised eggs. Here's a look at how founder Matt O'Hare built it. When I first got into the business, I heard the terminology all the time, an egg is an egg is an egg. I talked to a, to a chef in a restaurant, and I'd give him a case of our eggs, and then I'd get a call back, because they'd say, holy, this is not what I expected it would be. My name is Matt O'Hare. I'm the founder and executive chairman of Vital Farms, and I live in Austin, Texas. When we started the company, over 90% of the chickens that produced eggs in the United States were in cages, the most tortured farm animal in the world. Chickens are sentient beings. I mean. They have personalities. They get upset, they get mad, they get happy. We also found out that when you get them out of the cage and put them on a pasture, that they were happy. They produced a much better egg. The yolks were different, the, the, they were thicker, they were darker orange, and they tasted so much better, which was a magic combination. Pasture-raised is 108 square feet per bird outdoors, which is 1,000 birds per hectare outdoors which is huge when you consider that a, a cage has 40 or 50 square inches. You know. The Whole Foods customer got us early on, and that was important because we're, we're doing something that was totally different. Vital Farms uh, going public on the NASDAQ, ticker VITL. As consumers try our eggs, they realize that even as expensive as, as they can be at times, it's a very inexpensive amount to pay for your protein, so it's worth getting the best. We've grown to become the second largest egg brand in the United States at retail, and yet we're still only maybe five or 6% of U.S. retail sales of eggs. I envision the company being as big as it is today. Our growth rate from inception has always been tremendous. It shows that that movement is, is working and that people really care what they eat and where, they, where it comes from when it comes to eggs. Vital Farms founder Matt O'Hare joins me now. I, I love that story. I wanted to know what you were going to say, like, holy yoke, right? That was the word that was going to come oh, out. Please don't. <laughs> Listen, I, I really like, I actually have these in my refrigerator. I'm not trying to pump the brand. I just, I do care about free range. I do love really orange yolks. You can tell the difference in taste. I, I want to ask you about this card that comes in the carton that says, hey, do you want to know more about your exact farm where your eggs were laid? Why did you do that? It's a, called, it's a traceability program. It's a lot more complicated than you might think because we have to, you know, we have millions of eggs coming into Egg Central Station every day from our 300 farms. And we have to know where every single one of those eggs come from. We have to trace it back to the farm. And we have the ability to do that with our traceability program. And so we wanted to show people when, when they, you know, when they open their egg carton or when they're eating their eggs in the morning, they can look in the side of the carton and see which one of the 300 family farms uh, that we that produce our eggs it came, that they came from and actually see the video of the chickens live, not live, but chicken, the chickens on the pasture, which is really fun to see. And you can actually move the camera around to see, you know, where they are. And, uh, and they're, you know, they're in the trees, they're in the, they're in the ground, they're in the pasture. You know, chickens are, are Southeast Asia jungle fowl. Uh, and they, they're used to living in sort of that wild environment. And 
they have a, such a selection of of things to eat on pasture, uh, which really is what makes them so happy. And you get to see that live uh, because of the traceability program that we have in our gardens. Well, I got to say, I tried to do it myself during the pandemic, got chickens, watched them roost in the trees far out of reach where I could get them. And they never made it to actually laying eggs. So I resorted back to buying yours. Matt, thank you so much for joining us and talking to us a little bit about the incredible effort that you've put behind Vital Farms. Appreciate it. Appreciate it, Contessa. Thanks for talking to me. Next time they're going to boil these eggs for me so I can eat them on camera. All right. Speaking of somebody who made it, tonight we pay tribute to media mogul, actress, and of course philanthropist Oprah Winfrey. She's celebrating her 70th birthday today. And who can forget this iconic moment from the Oprah Winfrey show? Her daytime talk show ran for 25 years, was one of the highest rated in TV history, and of course it helped her grow her business empire, which expands to nutrition, to real estate, and of course a lot more to media that she now owns. Today she's worth $2.8 billion, showing no signs of slowing down, and in part it's because, you know, she's making 70 look awesome. Thank you for watching Last Call tonight. I'll be back in the chair tomorrow night. I hope you can join us then. Until then, have a great Monday. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.